shelf up where Eduardo is. Yeah, I think you met Eduardo earlier this year. Dan Peters is a lawman from where the seminary is, so he sought to um, find me some support. Uh, let's see, Ann will spend a bit extra time in Bogota. Christian will spend some time in Medellin. And uh, Scott and Santa Marta as well. Now, as we preach your word here at Trinity, Lord, thank you that we can come with confidence in your word, Lord. Um, your word is living and active, and it is for us as a people, as a body of believers this morning. So speak to our hearts, and then those who are here who perhaps are not believers in you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would pour out your mercy. We ask that you would draw, that you would call people yes. to yourself. Yes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you are a guest this morning, I also welcome you. We preach through books here at Trinity, and you landed this morning in a text. We are preaching our way through 1 Thessalonians this summer. Then we will take the summer to preach through some of the Psalms which we like to do whenever our preaching schedule allows us to do, and it will. So we'll start that in three weeks. Um, and then at the close of the summer, as we launch into fall, we will pick back up in Second Thessalonians. That's where we're at. That's where we're going. That's why we're reading this text this morning and where we find ourselves. The title this morning is Ready, Sudden, Soon, and Unavoidable. Um was sharing with my brother Jeff here right before preaching, how do you say Christ is returning passively? <laughs> like, like I, think we, I think we almost think like that sometimes. Like, like, let us be reminded of what we just read. Christ is returning for his people. That is stunning, yes. stunning news. We're going to split this sermon up, if you will. There's going to be kind of two things that are happening. The first thing that's going to happen is we're going to come to, if you will, eschatology seminary class, because we need to unpack some things. Um, we need to unpack some things. And so eschatology, as was mentioned last week by Alex, it's a fancy word. It's just a word. It comes from the Greek eschatos, meaning last or end things. And of course, ology. So it's a study of last things. That's what we're talking about. That's what this text is about. And so the sermon will have two parts. The first part will be a bit classroom. And it might even be for some of you, well, some of you love the classroom, but for some of you, yeah, the classroom can be a little bit difficult. And so hang with me. We're going to get to the text uh, about midway through this. Alex mentioned a couple books last week. Uh, I didn't couldn't find my copy of the four views that he mentioned, but I want to recommend that to you. We're going to discuss some of those four views this morning. But here's the thing. I promise you, if this is new to you, I'm going to lose you. And so I recommend, if you're looking to understand the, the kind of four main views of end time theology, you're going to want to pick up this four views book. Um, so that's a good one. 
Uh, this also, I've got an older copy than Alex held up last week, but Anthony Hokema, we would recommend him, um, the Bible and the future. And then when our Eduardo, Eduardo was here, um, we were talking about our upcoming series in First Thessalonians. He's like, have you heard of Samuel Waldron? No, I never heard of him. He's like, you got to pick up his book, um, The End Times Made Simple. Um, out of all the books I've read on end times, I, I think this is my favorite. Um, so just want to hold that up for you and, um, yeah, recommend Samuel Waldron to you. Um, before we dive into the four views and kind of unpack those a little bit further, we need to know there's kind of, there's, there's these two, what I would say, common ditches that we fall into when we're talking about end times eschatology. The first ditch is the overly obsessive Oliver. All right, the second ditch is the lack of caring carry. Overly obsessive Oliver, first of all, has read every left behind novel and treats them as scripture rather than the novel that they are. Oliver watches intently and speaks about every major Middle Eastern event and every Middle Eastern leader with confidence, connecting that event and or that leader to a scripture with absolute certainty that it's speaking, he is speaking to its ultimate meaning. Meanwhile, the other ditch, lack of caring carry rolls his eyes and says, I don't know. And I'm annoyed with overly obsessive Oliver and his overzealous interpretations of everything. And so I just don't care anymore. Both of those are a ditch. And no surprise if you are a member here at Trinity, the gospel addresses both ditches. For overly obsessive Oliver, he thinks he has moved on from the gospel into greater and deeper things. He's decoding things. Wow, we need to be impressed. He thinks he's decoding some really deep things and he comes to the coffee conversation with charts and diagrams and news articles and printouts and he's ready to unpack them all for you over a cup of coffee. Overly obsessive Oliver needs to know we don't move on from the gospel into deeper things and greater things and more glorious things. And while the end times might be an exciting subject for him, the gospel is an aspect of the second coming of Christ. And there's nothing more deep or glorious or more worshipful or more exciting than Christ's death, resurrection, and yes, he will return for his bride. For lack of caring, carry, I want to remind him as well that the second coming of Christ is a part of the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, eschatology is about God restoring all things to what he created them to be. It's a return, if you will, to the garden. It's about his glory. It's about his awe. It's about worship. It's about God's ultimate redemptive victory, ultimate redemptive victory over sin, over death, over our enemy. It's about Christ's victorious return. It's about God's ultimate reconciliation of all things. So, Alex re referenced there's four major views. 
And I'll unpack those a little bit more this morning. Welcome to the classroom. The first is dispensational premillennialism. Let's watch. <laughs> God bless you, ladies. What is dispensational premillennialism? It's that Jesus will return premillennial before the thousand year reign of Christ described in Revelation 20. This view states that history is divided into different dispensations, God's activity through different eras with man. Within this view is what Alex also referenced last week, the secret rapture theory, of which now we both know neither of us hold to. It's the idea that Christ will return in two stages. The first stage is the secret return of Christ when he removes believers from this world and the great tribulation then begins. The second stage will end the reign of the Antichrist and will begin the millennial reign then of Christ. Second view. Wow. So I did that in like two minutes. There are so many books on just one view. All right. So we're going to move fast. Two, historic premillennialism, or also known as covenantal premillennialism, pre, right? Just hear the word pre and you get the idea. It shares much with our dispensational brothers, um, but it's seeking to state it's not a new view. It's historic premillennialism. And that's important. Why? Well, because dispensational premillennialism isn't historic. So it's about 150 years old. So it's rather new on the timeline of theology history. And well, that's a pretty good knock against dispensationalism. Um, when your theology is only 150 years old, you might want to just be a little I don't know, because there's some really godly people back there for thousands of years who have been stating some things, and if we're coming up with a new one in the middle of the 1800s, just saying, how or why did all these church fathers and church leaders for thousands of years completely miss this one? So that's why they want to be noted for historic premillennialism. The next one is amillennialism, which is the view that I hold. Now, let me say this is the view that I hold, but it's not the view of the church. What's the view of the church? I don't know because we're not trying to say, you know what? This is where Trinity lands. I, honestly, I don't know where the five of us elders land. This conversation we'll be having in the near future um, I probably would guess it'd be either this one or the next one that I'll be sharing with you. Um, but amillennialism, so you note the ah before the millennial. So does that, that, does that mean amillennialist doesn't believe in a millennial? M millennium? No. 
doesn't mean that. It means that we don't believe in a literal 1,000 years. So when we look at Revelation 20, we're talking about something that's symbolic, which by the way, it's apocalyptic genre, which means there's a lot of symbolism in, Re- in Revelation. So this is a, not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic. This view believes that in, it believes in a period of time called the church age, and we are in it. Between the church age is between Christ's first coming and his return, his second coming. This view of scripture looks at how regularly and consistently scripture points to this evil age and the age to come. So we're living in the church age now after Christ's first coming. He will come again, that is his second coming, and he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Got it? <laughs> Four, post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. So Christ will return after the thousand years. Um, is the idea here. So if, if you're kind of tracking, just to kind of sum it up, boil it down, the first two views has Christ taking believers out of this world and then the tribulation. The second two views is the believer remains through the tribulation. So here's what I want to do. I want to address the first view a little bit more. Why? Well, because it's popular. It's a popular view. It is the the popular view of our day. If I could caution us, popular shouldn't assumed to be accurate. Um, It's just popular. All right, so a little bit of history. Dispensational view. This was first made popular by John Darby, mid-1800s. And then made further popular by um, Schofield Study Bible. Uh, And then made, we'll just jump all the way to more recently, made hugely popular by the Left Behind series. Important to this view is a distinction between Israel and the church, whereas the other three views do not make that distinction. God has one people. He does not have a plan for these people and a plan for these people. He has a plan for his people. Um, Dispensationalism also states that apocalyptic literature must be translated literally. So look for literal timetables. Well, back in the 70s, this view grew in popularities through uh, a couple things that I've already mentioned, but there are prophecy conferences in the 70s, and then there was a series of movies when you go way back to the 70s. I've referred to them before to you. As I was watching A Thief in the Night, it scared the hell out of me. (laughs) This stuff was rough to watch, and for the sake of the kids, I won't make any references. But the premise, the toned-down premise, is that you are to turn to Christ or you will be left behind when Christ returns and secretly raptures his church. And it was first made popular by what, what a great, yeah, man, graphic artist back in the day, 1972. And then as you bump forward, 
Then again, Left Behind series, and you got our buddy Kirk Cameron on the cover, and just look at, like, this is serious stuff. Um, and then, even bumping forward still, did you know that Nicolas Cage made a movie? I'm not sure why Nicolas Cage was part of this movie, but whenever you have a Nicolas Cage movie, you must have fire in the background. You must have fire. Usually, he's running. The problem that I have with this view is it creates a second coming of Christ, a secret rapture, which we saw last week isn't in the text. It's not a secret. The trumpets are blasting. Um, But it creates a second coming of Christ, which is hard to support biblically, because then it creates a third return of Christ after the tribulation. So 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 are, the reason why I'm unpacking these and why Alex is referencing last week is because these are the texts that are used to support this view. Why? Well, remember chapter 4, verse 17 last week, then we who are alive, who are left, all right, that's where you get the idea. Let's, Let's write a book and make some movies. They're left behind. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so, wait, Tim, I thought you said left behind isn't in Scripture. Here's the thing. We need to understand the context about what Paul is addressing. He's not saying that some are taken and some are left behind. That's not the, te- the text that Alex was preaching last week. He's saying some have died. They've gone before you, and you're still alive. You're left. Um, and so some have died and gone to be with Christ before you. And what Paul is doing here is he wants to comfort the believer so that they understand those who have, he says, fallen asleep would have a sense of comfort and confidence that they are with Christ while the rest of us are left behind. We're still living in this age, waiting for Christ to return. So whatever view you might hold to, please understand of these four views, we're not We're not looking to get in arguments. We're happy to have conversations. We're not saying you have to hold to such and such a view to be a member at Trinity, et cetera, et cetera. It is secondary. Your view is secondary. Primary is that you would would be on script with us. Christ is returning. He will return for his bride. And we will probably all be surprised. In this text, Paul is helping those who are still living. That's been his point. That's the context. That's what he's after in the Thessalonians and in us. Consider where we've been in our study more recently, chapter four. What has he been doing? He's talking about living to please God, specifically our sexual purity and our love for one another. He then shifts to talk about the destiny of those who have fallen asleep. They've died People have died. Suffering is a thing. It is a when, not if, in our lives. And so our desire is to help us, prepare us to have a theology of suffering for when those days come. So the Thessalonians believers, they needed assurance about these things. Loved ones have died. That's the issue of bereavement. That was Alex's sermon last week. And Alex, you served us so well. 
through the suffering. You, church, got to see a theology of suffering function as he stood here and preached the word and shared about the passing of his brother. Amen. So last week's about Christ's return and those who have died, and Paul's helping us to grieve and yet to have hope because Christ is returning. That's what that's, what that's after. And now he moves on to Christ's return and those of us who are living. And the question that always comes up when speaking about these things is when? When's it going to happen? We like to know when. That was the Thessalonians. That's today. Let us know when so we can get prepared, you know, because we want to be sure we're living right when that day comes. Some things never change. There has always been a lust to know when since the days Christ walked the earth. So, and I've shared this in a, a sermon in Isaiah, but I think it bears repeating some of these next things. So in the 70s, you've got half a million copies sold of the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. You jump into the 80s, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It was a pamphlet. <laughs> pamphlet sold four and a half million. Didn't know this until this week. The author, Edgar Wisenant, uh, was a NASA engineer. So I'm wondering, does any of you know? (laughs) Uh, Sadly, Edgar once said, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. He was wrong. (laughs) Unless it was more of a secret than we knew. Um, He was wrong a few times. He said Christ would return September 11 through 13, 1988. 1988 came and went. So... In, 19, in 1989, he published another book which stated the rapture would take place in 89 instead of 88. He later made it 93 and then 94. Um, every time, listen, every time there's war, every time there's a new political leader in the Middle East, um, the, it, it, it kicks up the end times experts to start to piece together the puzzle and announce a date. And I just want to say to us, it's not Okay. Harold Camping first predicted that the Judgment Day would occur on or about September 6, 94. That day came and went. He shifted to October 2nd. Uh, in 2005, he predicted it would be May 21st, 2011. It's made hugely popular by an advertising campaign by Family Radio. May 21, 2011 came and went. And then um, he said the end would come October 21st, 2011. And who of us who were alive in 1999 can forget Y2K? Oh my goodness. Epic end of time hysteria. Today you can go on a website. It is called the Rapture Index. Okay, so the index was created as an online scale, if you will, for you to see end times activity It is a self-proclaimed, this is from their website, prophetic speedometer. The higher the number on the rapture index is based on current news and things that are taking place. And so the index gets ramped up, meaning Christ's coming. It's a little bit more imminent. And uh, I don't know, church. Paul takes a different approach. 
So we're going to move on from this to the text. And here's the big idea of the text. The believer is to live ready for Christ's return, knowing that it will be a sudden return. We are to be expecting a soon return with a sense of urgency that it is an unavoidable return. All right, so let's unpack that. Number one, live ready for Christ's return. It is verses one and two. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Notice how Paul is stating this. There's no need for anything to be written to you. You're fully aware that the day will come. Why is there no need? Paul, well, because the day of the Lord has been a scriptural theme throughout scripture. The Old Testament is loaded with this theme as it points forward, um, as it is a, an event in the Old Testament, of judgment and salvation, but it points forward to a future return, day of the Lord of judgment and salvation. It's the day when the unbeliever, hear me please, will face eternal, eternal judgment and the believer will face eternal salvation. It is the day of the Lord. It is sometimes referred to as the great and terrible day, judgment and salvation. Paul is saying, look, you don't need me to write to you because, wow, there's so much written to you already. As I said, the Old Testament is filled with texts regarding the day of the Lord. When the Lord comes in judgment and salvation, and each of them points to that ultimate future day. Was hoping to read just a bunch of texts just to make you feel the weight of, yeah, nothing really needs to be written, <laughs> guys. <laughs> I'm not going to read them all, but I'm just going to reference them. Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 46, Ezekiel 30, Zechariah 1. Joel 1, Joel 2, Amos 5, Malachi 4. If you're trying to write those down, just shoot me a text and I'll send them to you. There's so many more. Those are just the ones that I was going to read. And it's this idea, a day will come when God will judge those who refuse to repent of sin and God will save those who do repent of sin. Paul's point is that a day is coming it is certain. And so we are to live ready. When will it be? Don't know. But we know there's a day coming. There is a literal day on the calendar. We don't know when, but it's coming. And the Thessalonians were saying, look, if we knew when, then we could properly prepare ourselves for that day. You know, because he's talked about living in purity and loving each other. And maybe we ought to just, you know, hey, it's coming next week. Ramp up our preparation. Ramp up our repentance and make sure we're living right, right before he comes. Well, that obviously isn't the way to honor the Lord with our life. We are to live ready. 
That is to inform how we live, yes. We might call today, as it's referring to the day of the Lord, we might call today the day of man, right? Man's ambitions, man's pride, man's lofty thinking. The arrogance of man runs free. There's a pride of thinking and living and just how enlightened of a people we are. Well, God will bring an end to the day of man and that pride, and it will be the day of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Some some shout on the street corner and hold up banners, you know, turn or burn type ideas. The day of the Lord is coming, and they're shouting at people on the street corner. Look, that just lacks love. That is a gong, clanging symbol. But the other extreme we might find more in the building is that we say nothing because we don't want to offend or we don't want to make someone feel uncomfortable. And that silence also lacks love. So, yes, help us. So we're to live ready. Number two, we're to know that it will be a sudden return. Verses two and three. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The picture Paul paints for us is a thief in the night and labor pains. The thief comes, what? Suddenly. Again, the point isn't knowing when the thief is coming. The point is knowing that the thief will come. It is certain and it is sudden. It's like a thief in the night. If we knew when the thief was coming, then we would stay awake. (laughs) Kim and I once had a thief in the night. Um, Our previous house, our bedroom had two windows, bed in the middle of these two windows, and just outside of the windows was our driveway. And so cars are parked right here, windows here. It was a cool evening, and so the windows, they were open. So you just have the screen there. In the middle of the night, we start to hear the thief. I think it was 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, My wife, Kim, heard the thief a little bit more than I did. Not a quiet thief. He was was rummaging. Um, His body was... He was in the car on the passenger side, which literally from where Kim sleeps, her window, we're talking maybe four feet to where this guy is in the car, (laughs) rummaging, going through rather noisily. At which point, and I don't recommend this, ladies, for the sake of your husbands, but she said, hey, what are you doing? At which point, the thief in the night went bump against his head, I'm sure. He stumbles out of our car. By now, I'm running around the bedroom to see what is she yelling at. And he hops two two fences and gone. It's great. Great thief in the night. Four feet. The only thing that separated our thief in the night and my wife was a screen (laughs) mesh. Paul also says that in verse 3, people are saying peace, security, everything's fine, right? 
you might be here. Like, everything's fine. What's this guy going on about? A lot of Christians look for those sentiments in the news. What's the United Nations doing? What are the peacekeepers doing? And when there is peacekeeping, things going on, a bit of peace in the world, especially if there's some peace in the Middle East, many believers start saying, here it comes. Look out. Look out. It is kind of interesting because on the flip side, there's a lot of war. There's also references to that in scripture. And so they're going, look out. And so I guess you can't get it wrong at some point. It's an amazing American 21st century kind of understanding of peace when we come to scriptures like this, which isn't helpful. We need to remember the context that Paul was writing to the Thessalonians. And so I'm going to take you back to our first sermon in Thessalonians, which wasn't in Thessalonians. Where was it? It was in Acts 17, where Paul was in Thessalonica. And in that text, we were talking about how Paul had stirred up all sorts of trouble, right? Lack of peace. And remember, we talked about the polytarchs. So the polytarchs were the city officials, and it was their responsibility to keep the peace in the city because we got some distance between us and Rome, and we really kind of like that because when Rome stays over there and they know that we polytarchs are taking things, care of things over here and things remain peaceful, then, you know, we get to live a little bit more freely from the thumb of Rome. And if things are not peaceful, like Paul is kicking up a lack of peace, then Roman soldiers are going to march into our city. We're going to need to feed them. We're going to need to house them. And they'll be looking at us. So peace was an issue in Thessalonica. Paul's point here is that peace is not what you think it is. Peace is not a lack of war with Rome or with others. The peace with Rome, called the Pax Romana, is a false peace. It feels like a peace. Look, we're living in peaceful times here in America. It feels like peace, but it's a fleeting peace because the end will come. And you don't need peace with Rome. And you don't need peace with America's enemies. You need peace with God. And here's the proclamation. Oh, peace, peace, security. True peace, ultimate peace, is provided by the prince of peace. It is the gospel of peace. Paul isn't concerned with their temporary peace with Rome. He wants them to know, and he wants us to know, ultimate peace. So American Christian, hear me. You live in a peaceful country. You say, well, did you see the news last year? All the rioting, all the this or that? Oh, you live in a peaceful country. We need to be better historians. We need to be better geographers. Go around the world. Your peace, American Christian, is not found in the strength of your military or in your preferred commander in chief. These are idols. Peace is not found in a country. Those are fleeting. Kings and kingdoms come and go. And they are nothing in the hands of the Lord. So if you hang your hope on this fleeting hope of a peaceful city or a peaceful country, what are you going to do when that peace is gone? 
the hope that the gospel brings is a peace with God, a peace that is bigger than our politics and bigger than our government and bigger than our commander in chief. This peace is literally being experienced by believers in China today. Peace. As pastors lose their freedom and their peace, humanly speaking, because they're imprisoned. They have no freedom, and yet they have a greater peace that the gospel brings because the peace of the gospel, peace with God, is bigger than chains and bigger than bars, both of which will one day be gone because Christ is coming. That's what Paul's doing here. If you're looking for peace outside of the gospel, I have to warn you, your peace will end. That's the point here. Paul wants us to honor the Lord with our lives. He's not motivating us by saying he comes on such and such a day, so live like the world until a few days before that and then repent. Perform a fast and a repentance ceremony so you can be right. It ought to remind us of the words of our Savior. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Number three, expect his return to be soon. We're living in the age of soon. Did you know that? You know how long we've been living in the age of soon? Since Christ rose. The apostles referred to Christ coming again as soon, imminent. He's coming. He's coming. That's the age in which we, in which we live. When is he coming? Soon. Soon simply means live expectantly, live with a sense of urgency and excited expectation for the believer. Number four, it's unavoidable. Let me read verse three and four again. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. I know that's a rough breaking point, but get the feel this morning. It's all we got time for. So we'll pick it up again next week. Alex will pick it up again next week. I'll be in Columbia. <laughs> it's unavoidable. John Stott pulls the illustrations together. Thief in the night, labor pains, pulls them together by saying this. So by putting the two metaphors together, we may say that Christ's coming will be one, sudden and unexpected, like a burglar in the night, and two, sudden and unavoidable, like labor at the end of a pregnancy. In the first case, there will be no warning. In the second case, no escape. Like birth. I was surprised. I was the greeter outside this morning when I saw Michael Johnson, Johnson here. I'm surprised you're here. <laughs> I don't know if you heard me, <laughs> but as you were walking down the sidewalk, I'm surprised you're here because birth is coming. Baby Jay's coming. It's unavoidable. 
There'll be no delay. That day, there's a calendar day for baby Jay. That's awesome. It is certain, it is sudden, it is soon, it is unavoidable. The birth of a child is impossible to avoid. We are awaiting. Let me put it like this. Creation is pregnant. Awaiting the return of Christ. So Paul's point is that, yes, you should be making yourself ready for the day of Christ. Believer and unbeliever, make yourself ready. He's saying the way to make yourself ready is not by knowing the day, Rather, it's by knowing that he's coming. It is certain, sudden, soon, and unavoidable. Therefore, prepare in advance. Live. That's what the whole chapter four is about. Live to please the Lord. But you say, do you really believe this stuff, Tim? That Christ will return? Listen. That's what people have said throughout the ages. Before Christ came the first time, people were saying that. When Christ was there, people continued to say that. After Christ rose, people still say that. Christ came the first time because he said he would. He will return the second time because he said he would. People didn't believe he would come, and then he came. Many people still didn't believe that he was there, and then he died, and then he rose, and then he ascended. People don't believe believe to this day that he's really God, even if they can point to a historical man whose name was Jesus Can't deny that that person didn't live, but he couldn't be God. So people don't believe that he'll come again. And I believe just in the sovereign hand of God, he has you here this morning to hear Christ is returning. Christ's first coming ended on the cross. The cross of Christ was a day of judgment and salvation. When he returns, it will be a day of judgment and salvation. The return of Christ will be that day. John 5 puts it this way, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life where Paul says it in verse 4 but you are not in darkness brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief not being prepared for that day is what Paul is saying living in darkness it's living in sin and unbelief readiness for that day is living in the light Trust in Christ, repent of sin, 
and live for the Lord. Let's stand together and let's joyfully sing together.